while Jesus was hanging on the cross, this is what we are told. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we'd ask that you this morning would be gracious with us and teach us this one simple truth of what Jesus meant when he said it is finished. If you would grant us that understanding this morning, Lord, by your grace, it will fill us with a hope and a joy and a purpose and a work that far exceeds what we are doing now. We want to know the real work on the cross. We want to see its completion. We want to understand deeply, Lord, how that forgiveness was given to us because of the work of Christ. We admit, Father, that we are often distracted and still deceived by so much sin. But we know that you are the God of all creation, and you can overcome that for us this morning. And so we ask that you would do that through your Holy Spirit. Be gracious with us. Help us to hear, help us to understand, and help us to be changed by this most glorious truth, that it is indeed finished. We ask that you would do this, Father, for your own glory, that your name might be magnified here this morning and throughout the earth. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. There are certain Sundays that seem harder than others to worship God. I, I don't know why. I've tried to figure that out for 20 years, and I, I, I don't know why. Today's one of those days. Um, several things happened earlier this day to try to disrupt things. Uh, my wife is not here. If you please be praying. Her, her parents were in a very bad car accident this morning. Um, so she went to the hospital to be with them. Um, so there's that, that sense of distraction, that sense of delays. I pray that we are able to honor God this morning as we've gathered here as his people to hear him speak and to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? That we won't allow the things of this world to get into this time that was set aside by God before the foundations of the world for us to gather and worship. That's why you're here. Amen? Okay. Okay, so if you have, if you struggled with some distractions coming in, by God's grace, ask him to give you a heart and a mind and ears to hear and respond, because we want a response to this teaching. We certainly want a response to our Lord's saying so clearly and just so definitively, it is finished. We want a right response to that. If you were here with us last week, we, we've hit that point of the narrative where Jesus Christ is now hanging upon the cross. Everything that we've learned in the Gospel of John 
has led to this point. Everything that has succeeded the cross brings us back to this point. And so we want to look more closely at the work, the, the consummation of the work that God exercised, God the Father exercised through His Son on the cross. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, God reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. And when we examine all four gospel accounts, we, we see that Christ actually said seven things upon the cross, not just the few that we have here in the Gospel of John. He actually said seven, three, said three statements before darkness came upon the land at noon and stayed dark for three hours. He's made one statement during the darkness and he made three after, two of which we have here in the Gospel of John. In chronological order, they read Luke 23, 34, giving all mankind great hope, Jesus said, Father, what? Forgive them for they know not what they do. This is probably the phrase you know best from the cross. In Luke 23, 43, the next statement that he makes is to one of the thieves crucified next to him. Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he offers this, great, this thief hope for eternal life. And then we have here in the Gospel of John his third statement on the cross. John 19, verses 26 and 27, in order to put his house in order, he says to John the Apostle, talking to Mary and John the Apostle, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And then darkness came. Darkness came upon the earth. And we're told in Matthew 27, verse 46, that Jesus had one statement during the darkness, and that was what? We looked at it last week. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me during that time of great agony? And then the darkness passes, and we pick up here in John 19, 28, where Jesus says, I thirst. And then his second to last statement, which will be our focal point for today, when Jesus said, for all to hear, it is finished. You've probably heard this term before in the Greek, to telestai. It literally means to accomplish, to finish. It can be translated paid in full. And then the final statement, which is alluded to here in 19, but said in Luke 23, 46, our Lord's last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now usually when we think of what Christ said on the cross, we think of that glorious statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we hear that, keenly because we know of our sin and we know of our desperate need to be forgiven. But had Christ not said and had he not completed the work that he said he completed, this forgiveness could not be offered. The granting of it was contingent upon Jesus actually doing the work. And so I pray that for you, your ears will become more fine-tuned to him saying, it is finished, and then say, I have been forgiven because of the great work of Christ. I'd like to look at that single word, tetelestai. It is finished. It's translated in three in the English, but it is one in the Greek. I'd like to look at it by asking three simple questions. Number one, what work did he finish? What did he accomplish on the cross? Number two, how should this finished work shape us as a people? How should it shape the church? And number three, what work then are we to do? What work are we to do? Number one, what work did Christ finish? The three utterances that preceded the darkness included one here that we find in John 19. Look with me at verse 26. Jesus is now putting his house in order. 
He saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And so before Jesus enters into this darkness, before he receives in his body the just punishment of our sins, he says to John, listen, take care of my mom. It's such an amazing, there's an entire another sermon here, which I'm not going to do, but it's so incredible that Christ is about to enter the darkness. He's about to receive the punishment, and he has concern for his mother's well-being. And so John takes Mary from that point on into his home and cares for her as a son. And then our Lord enters the darkness. He goes into that time on the cross when, as the Bible says, he bore the just, eternal wrath of God in his body. Hence, he cries out, my God, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He looks around, and in utter desperation, his friends are gone, his family's gone, the disciples are gone, God is gone. He is utterly alone in the suffering that he had to experience in order to redeem even one soul. Three hellish hours upon the cross, suffering unimaginable consequences. And I use that, that word, unimaginable, in the most literal sense. You could spend your entire life trying to get a hold of the consequences that Christ bore on the cross for your sins alone, let alone all those who would be saved. And you could not, I dare say, we'll spend all of eternity trying to grasp the magnitude of the sacrifice that Christ made to redeem us. Every single sin committed by every single sinner who would be saved, Christ took and paid for. Every single one. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst, I thirst. Now, I'm going to tell you that I've heard some fantastic sermons on this word, I thirst. Years ago, I actually preached a sermon on this phrase, I thirst. And I'm going to tell you now, I don't think that that sermon was terribly accurate. (laughs) Not that what surrounded it wasn't right or the doctor that came out was right, but I'm now convinced that Christ was saying, I thirst because he was actually thirsty and he needed to speak again. Right, So he's made it through the darkness. He's bore the sin. He's already said, it is finished. So there's no more payment for sin. And now he says, I'm thirsty. Why? He had to speak. He had to say, it is finished, that we might hear it. And so he asks, and they give him some, and his tongue is now separated from the roof of his mouth. And then he utters, my beloved, he utters the most glorious words that any man has ever uttered, and that is, it is finished. It is finished. So that God... His Father might hear so that we, His people, might hear so that we might this morning come and gather and say, yes, amen, it is finished. Glorious. Now, if you're sitting here saying, what is so glorious about that really weird Greek word to telestai, I want to share that with you. What was finished? What makes this statement so glorious to those who have been redeemed? I want you to see a few things, and there's a few. We could go on, and I won't, but we could. This is a report to his father. His father sent him to do a work. This is the servant saying to the master, I have completed my work. I have finished my job. Several things come to mind. One, that Christ completed the work by living a perfectly obedient life to his father. 
It was a life that was lived in perfect accord with the Father's will. You say, well, what, what does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ, in his 33 years here on earth, he loved God the Father with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. We sing it, we pray it, he did it in full. It means that he loved his neighbor as himself. It means he loved perfectly his neighbor as himself. The very law that was given by God to Moses to tell us how to live our lives, Jesus actually did perfectly, without failure. Not one word. I I, I so want you to get this, the beauty of our Savior. Not one word did Christ ever utter that was not completely and perfectly pleasing to our Father. Not one word. Not one word. I can't go an hour and say that. Not one action by Jesus Christ was the Father not perfectly pleased with. Not just pleased, but perfectly pleased. Not one thought entered Jesus' mind. And God the Father did not say, that is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Not a single thought, not a single word, not a single action. For 33 years, He lived what? He lived the sinless human life. He lived the life that Adam was supposed to live, but failed to live. He lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, but we failed to live. The life you were created to live, Jesus lived on your behalf. And so when he said, it is finished, he is saying to the Father, I have lived the life that they were supposed to live. I have now lived it on their behalf, Father. And the Father says, I am well pleased. Tetelestai was a declaration as well for the perfect fulfillment of what? Of every prophecy, every promise, and every type and shadow in the Old Testament that pointed to the Savior. Every one. Hundreds, hundreds, going all the way back. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and say, what what prophecy was in Genesis 3? What promise was in Genesis 3? God said to Adam and Eve, the curse upon the serpent, what that the seed of the woman would come and bruise the head of the serpent. He would crush the serpent. He would destroy Satan and the power of sin and death and hell, that this promise would come through this man. Christ fulfilled that on the cross. Every single sacrifice made in the temple, every single sacrifice made in the tabernacle, the meat sacrifice, the meal sacrifice, the peace offering, the burnt offerings, every single one pointed to Christ who was the ultimate sacrifice. It's why we don't do that today. We're told in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the ultimate and the final sacrifice. The same sacrifices, this is from Hebrews 10, the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year can never make perfect those who draw near to God. We're told that all those sacrifices, year after year, the priests would come and they'd offer them year after year, but they can't make us perfect, therefore we can't draw near to God. And then we're told in Hebrews 9.26, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by what? By the sacrifice of himself. He's it. When he climbed upon that cross, he fulfilled every sacrifice that preceded. Every type of Christ in the Old Testament, every man, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Jonah, they all were fulfilled. They all pointed to Christ. And every prophecy, as we looked last week, foretold this man's coming was fulfilled on the cross in his work. Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the moot sing for joy. Christ did all that work, all that work, consummated in his perfect life 
and death. He lived in perfect obedience to every law, fulfilled every prophecy, every type and shadow, crushing the serpent's head and destroying the power of sin and death. That is reason alone, my beloved, for you to rejoice in the work of Christ on the cross. That is reason alone for you to say, when he says it is finished, if that's what it means, then I ought to continue to sing and pray and serve and love that man. That is the right response. I'll give you one more before I go to my next point. The greatest completion on the cross, the greatest work that Christ did took place during these three hours of darkness. It was the fulfillment of when John the Baptist first saw Jesus. Remember in the very beginning of our narrative, he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And upon the cross, Christ did just that. He became for us an atoning sacrifice. He became for us the substitute that received in himself, on himself, all the sin, all the punishment that his children rightly deserved. God imputed that to him. It is a most fundamental biblical teaching, and it's fundamental to your faith. You must know this idea of substitutionary atonement, that Christ was on the cross instead of you, that Christ took the punishment instead of you. Why? So that you could receive the forgiveness and the mercy, and then God would impute onto you his righteousness. It's the great exchange. Christ for you. Your sins upon him, his righteousness upon you, so that you might have life now and that you might have life eternal with Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ doing this great work to satisfy a thrice holy God. His wrath, his righteousness satisfied upon the cross. The wrath that was supposed to come upon us satisfied upon the cross in Christ so that God the Father can be perfectly holy and still allow us in. How do we get into heaven like sinners? How do we do that? Someone must pay it. There must be a substitute. That substitute is Christ. Isaiah 53, 12. Jesus bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might what? We might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became the curse that you might receive the blessing. The great purpose of the cross summed up, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You say, well, why, why all this work? Why the suffering? Why the darkness? so that you and I and all who would repent and believe can be brought into the presence of the Father. This is why Christ did this great work, for his own glory, for the glory of the Father and the glory of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. What Jesus accomplished through his sinless life and sacrificial death for our sake, I I would have to argue, is too high and too deep It's too high and too deep for me to fully grasp, for you to fully grasp. We can only approach it. We can get close to it. But the closer we get, the more glorious it becomes and the more life-changing it is for us. We cannot grasp it, my beloved. You can't. As you get to the cross and you think about this, the sacrifice that was made and, and the punishment that he endured and the fact that he would then give us freely by grace his righteousness, it is too deep. 
But we must go down and we must swim to those deep waters that we might be captured by His love. Only a divine Savior, only the Son of God could and would engage in such a great saving work. Only Christ. Only an infinite love and only an infinite compassion for people like us, so wretched and so deplorable. Only God would do this. You say, how do you know that Christ was actually God by the work he did on the cross? Because only God would do that. Only God could do that. Jesus gave an honest report. He said to his father, Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. And that was a truthful statement. Which one of us could utter such a thing? Anybody in here could say, yeah, I I can say that. No, none of us. We have so much work that we have neglected to do. So much work that we have not done that God has called us to do. So much work that we have done poorly or haphazardly. And certainly there's so much more work for us to do. No one in here can say to God right now, it is finished. We've done the work. We've done it perfectly. Only Christ. Only Christ. I look at my labor and my labor seems to be filled with imperfection all the time. I, I, my wife asked if I would paint the front door. It's, it looked horrible. I said, okay. I put it off as long as I could. And then finally I said, okay. And so I took the door off. It's an original door. It's an old door. It's an ugly door. And I took it off and I put it in the garage and I sanded it and I skimmed it and I tried to make it look as nice as I could. And then I painted it and I stood back and I thought, it's still ugly. And I had to keep telling myself, it's not perfect. You can't make it perfect. You're not perfect. Be satisfied with it. I praise God that Jesus Christ did everything perfectly, that he finished the work on my behalf, on my behalf and on your behalf, if you know him as Savior. He is so worthy of all the honor and all the praise, of all the songs that we sing and the readings that we bring forth and the prayers that we lift up to him. He is worthy. He left nothing undone, not a single prophecy, not a single law, not one of your sins at this very moment, is uncovered. Do you know that? Not a sin that you have committed, are committing, or will commit. If you're in Christ, He covered it, He finished it. Not one. And it must be not one, because we can't enter into the presence of a holy God with even one sin, with even a trace of sin. Christ paid it in full. And so you say what? Crown Him with many crowns. Praise His name. Lift Him up. And we must, if this is true. If this is what it means when Christ said it is finished, then praise and adoration ought to flow from us if we understand it. All right, first point, that's the work. Second point, the impact. I mean, what impact should it have on us? I believe that as his people who have received, he was speaking to the Father, but he was also speaking to us. When he gave his report to the Father, he could have given that silently, but he didn't. He said, Father, it is finished. And everybody hears that. And then it's transcribed for us that we might read it and understand it too. First, the finished work of Christ in him, his spirit being delivered unto the Father should bring us comfort for one great reason. And that's because Christ is now comforted. Christ is now comforted. Our Savior can no longer and is no longer subject to the evil of men. 
no longer suffering at the hands of the Sanhedrin or Caiaphas or Pilate or the chief priests. He can no longer be ridiculed for his teachings or accused of, of being a demon for his great miracles. He was out of reach. He is completely now out of reach of those who arrested him and tried him. He cannot be beaten. He cannot be mocked. He cannot be nailed to a cross. He, he need not any longer and cannot suffer any more the travails of our punishment. He will no longer drink the cup of wrath. Calvary is no longer part of his future. And so we, if you know Christ and you love Christ, you will take great comfort in knowing that he is now comforted by the Father. There's nothing worse than someone we love in agony and we pray that God helps them and brings them out of that. Christ is no longer in the midst of this evil. It is finished. That should comfort you. And I would go one step further. So that doesn't bring me comfort past that. I said, then your love for Christ is lacking. This should be the first thing that comes to mind. He's not in this anymore. It is finished. Secondly, though, the finished work of Christ on the cross means the finished work for you if you put your faith in him. His finished work becomes your finished work. When the Father's will was completed in the broken body and spilled blood of the Savior, and Christ said because he did, in fact, finish the work, when the Father said to him, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, and then Christ completes that work to please the Father, that means God the Father can say to you, listen now, listen, those of you who are racked with guilt all the time, those of you who carry a heavy conscience all the time, I want you to listen. Christ, the Father, can say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, because of the work of his Son. You have that now. If God the Father is pleased with Christ, and you are in Christ, then God the Father at this very moment is pleased with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If God the Father is pleased with Christ, and you're in Christ, he's pleased with you. What do you mean pleased with me? That, that means that he looks upon you with great favor and great adoration and the work that Christ did has been given to you. I pray that you take comfort in that. If nothing else you hear today, take comfort in the fact that you wear the work of Christ and the work of Christ was perfect. It was finished. You wear it. You wear it. Never. Will the Father say to you, my son's work is not sufficient to cover you. You're lacking. Never. Charles Spurgeon once said, when I read this the first time I laughed, Charles Spurgeon said, I like sometimes when I'm praying to say to the great Father, Father, look on your son. Is he not all loveliness? Are there not in him uh, unutterable beauties? Do you not delight in him if you have looked on me and grown sick of me as well you may now refresh yourself by looking on your well-beloved son? That's a fantastic prayer. When God looks upon us and we say like Spurgeon, when you grow sick of us as you probably often do, but he doesn't because of Christ. You say gaze upon Christ because that's my beauty too. That's my work too. That's my righteousness too. Jesus' work on the cross when he says it is finished should become the ultimate conscience clear. You say, well, what do you mean by that? If you suffer often with a troubled conscience, and I'm not talking about unrepentant sin. If you have unrepentant sin and your conscience is weighing heavy, then repent of that sin and be made whole. Okay? 
But if you're one of those who just wears a heavy conscience, you're troubled in spirit a lot, as I am. If you're one of those sorts that have difficult nights, you're up at all hours, going to God in prayer, seeking forgiveness from God, troubled in spirit, know this, my beloved. If Christ finished the work and that work has been given to you, your conscience is clear before God. Did you hear me? You have no conscience issues. There's nothing in you right now, if you're in Christ, that will enable you to come before God and God say, I must cast you out. Christ clears the conscience for us. He's fulfilled the law completely, perfectly, dying in your stead. There's no greater medicine, my beloved, for the troubled soul. There's no greater medicine for the conscience that cannot sleep well at night than looking upon a crucified Christ and hearing him say, it is finished for that one too. It's finished for me and it's finished for you. Thirdly, this finished work by Christ on the cross is truly finished. And I know you say, well, that's obvious. That's what the word literally means, but I don't think we literally understand it. It is finished. Christ completed it. It's also translated paid in full. I like that too. That means the debt was cleared. What debt? Our debt. The debt of sin against a holy, righteous God has been cleared. It's been paid. It does not stand against your name. That's a glorious thing. There's nothing left to do. Nothing left for you to say. No work for you to do and no work for you not to do. If you have Christ, the debt is paid in full. That means no religious work, no ordinance, no sacrifice, no baptism, no good work, no bad work. Even when we take the Lord's Supper today, you do not take it because your debt is not paid. You take it because your debt is paid. When Lori and I got married, she came into the marriage. She had school loans. We paid that off. Cleared the debt. She came in and she had a car as well, a car loan. We paid that off. Paid the debt. And it's a glorious thing when you pay those off, isn't it? And you see it and it says, balance due zero. Your balance due to God because of your sin is zero. Paid in full, completely. That means you stand right now. I know these are hard words to hear, but believe them with all your mind. You stand guiltless before God. You stand guiltless before God. He finds no fault in you because Christ completed the work on your behalf. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not in a fight. It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to battle sin daily. We must. It doesn't mean that things aren't going to be difficult in the life of the church. I would argue quite the contrary. Things are going to get more difficult. But it does mean this. As you engage in these battles to become holy as He is holy, as you strive to live and to serve and love this most glorious Savior of yours, know that these battles are not indicative of the war itself. The war has been won. Victory is complete in Christ. It has been paid in full. And so we can go through these battles knowing that Christ has already bruised the head of the serpent. And therefore, we can gloriously march in God's kingdom and press on to glory. Fourthly, I want you to know the finished work of our salvation by Christ also guarantees your sanctification. We often think of Jesus Christ saying, it is finished to our justification. Therefore, he did this work, therefore I am saved. And that is gloriously true. But if Jesus Christ finished the work for us on our behalf, then he also promises, listen closely, to finish the work in us. In us. 
not only granting justification, but he promised that we will be holy as he is holy. And that includes the same perfection and the same righteousness, the same guiltlessness. And you may say to yourself, as I often do, I am so far from perfection. And the closer I draw to the Lord, the more imperfect I see myself. The more I draw into the light of God, the more I see the darkness in my heart. So I don't know how I can possibly believe that I will ever be sanctified. It seems so hard to believe, my beloved. I know, I know, but this is the work of it being finished. Not just your justification, but your sanctification. If God saved you when you hated him with all your might, if God brought the justifying power of the gospel of grace to you when you were in total rebellion, how much more so now that you've been born again and the Holy Spirit dwells in you and that you love Jesus, how much more so now will he make you holy? And you're being made holy. You see it in your own life. Your brothers and sisters see it. You're different now than you were a year ago. You're significantly different now than you were five years ago if you're in Christ. He promised to make us perfect, and he must, because we can't have a hint of sin upon us if we're going to enter into the throne of God. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Clean hands, perfect heart. If you are to enjoy for all eternity a holy God, and I mean enjoy him, if you are to bask in his love and be raptured by his beauty, be overwhelmed by his infinite grace and compassion for a sinner like you, then Jesus Christ must make you holy and he will. The Bible says that when you see him on that day, you will be as he is. How will you be? You will be holy as he is. You'll be pure as he is. I dare say we won't recognize ourselves. We're going to be so pure and so holy. Uh, you don't believe me, I can tell it. You don't believe me. Well, what a great day of shock and awe for us all. I do believe that the struggle here for some of you is that you still believe that some of you, some of you still believe that there's work to be done for you to make yourself such. Some of you still believe there's work for you to do to even be saved. These are grievous lies. The grace of God saves you. The finished work of Christ will sanctify you, and when we are glorified in his presence, it will be by his grace alone. Let me ask you this. What are you going to add to the work of Christ? What do you want to add to the work of Christ? What do you have that you're going to bring up to Christ upon the cross and say, you know what, Lord, that work is good, but you need a little bit more. What are you going to add? That good thought, that helpful deed, that ministry that you did. What are you going to add to the perfect work of Jesus Christ? A perfect work, by definition, cannot be added to or taken away. If you take away from it, it's not perfect. If you add to it, it is not perfect. And this was a perfect work. Therefore, don't try to add anything. All you're doing is making a mess of something that's beautiful. You've had that, right? When you had little kids and you've worked on a project and they come up and they go, hey, let me help. And their hands come in and what at least looked somewhat perfect wasn't so perfect anymore after they were done. You try to appease your conscience by doing these things thinking that you need to add, you need to do more. 
It will not be by your righteous deeds that you are justified, and it will not be by your righteous deeds that you are sanctified. It will be by the righteous work of Christ that he completed upon the cross. I pray you have not bought into that lie. Once I am better, then I'll come to Jesus. Once I get things cleaned up, then I'll come back and I'll make things right. You'll never come. You will never, ever come. You move away from the power of the gospel and the grace of God and your justification or your sanctification, and you will never come back because you'll never be ready and you'll never be clean. Only Christ can clean you. The power of a crucified, risen Savior to grant to you the grace and forgiveness is necessary to step onto the road of sanctification. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you cannot even see the kingdom Unless what? Unless you've been born again. You must be made alive by God in the Holy Spirit to be saved and sanctified. You're dead at the core apart from Christ. You need to be washed, but you can't wash yourself. If you believe that you are unfit for the kingdom and you need to do a work in order to be saved or sanctified, you're half right. You're unfit in total. But the sanctification and the justification comes from the finished work of Christ given to us freely by grace. It is a gift. It is a gift. We're all, my beloved, saved and unsaved. We are all far from perfect. Far from perfect. I don't know. I don't care how long you've loved the Lord or walked with Him or been in the church. If you think you're approaching perfection, you need to step back, take a long, hard look. We are all far from perfect. The question, the salient question for you this morning is not perfection, it's affection. It's not sinlessness on your own work, it's sinlessness in Christ. It is this, do you know Christ? And let's just make it real simple, do you know Christ? Do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a right affection for Him? Do you love Him? Because if you do, then you have his perfection, his perfection, which covers it all. I'll give you one more, and then we'll go to the last point. This completion on the cross, Jesus saying it is finished, it should cultivate in you and sustain in you an unimaginable, everlasting, eternal joy. Perfect in Christ. Until Jesus uttered that word, tetelestai, it is finished, the great work of redemption the necessary breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood, the necessary substitutionary atonement, him taking our sins and giving to us his righteousness had yet to take place. That means all the prophecies and all the law and all the types and shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament had yet to be fulfilled. So it was just still this grand narrative making its way to this point. But until that happened, everything was hanging upon him. When Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, the laws, the prophecies, the promises that were heard and anticipated for centuries were finally fulfilled. Finally fulfilled. So we can look back upon the work at Calvary, and it can fill us with joy because the lawgiver became a man and fulfilled the law perfectly so that men like us who are completely lawless can be forgiven instead of condemned, made righteous instead of staying unrighteous, and then brought in to this glorious, intimate communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to have God and to be known by God. 
Over the years, I have had, and I, I'm sure it's not just being a pastor, but people are very gracious. I've had people pay for things for me. You know, sometimes it's a cup of coffee, a lunch tab, sometimes a, you know, a bridge toll. If we were on a trip, they would be that car in front of you and you get up there to pay and they go, no, you've been paid for. Those are glorious things they are. They display wonderful acts of kindness and grace and love. And, and I appreciate them. But, but I do not then follow that person and when they pull over, bow down and worship them. I do not do that. In fact, if it's a bridge toll, I'm, I'm thankful for it, but it's a bridge toll. It may be five bucks. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, we don't know how to respond to the statement, your debt has been forgiven until we know how big the debt is, right? The size of the debt that has been forgiven that you receive the blessing from will determine how we respond to that person who has paid for it. And I believe that any illustration, picking up the tab of anything here on earth, falls woefully short of trying to capture the magnitude of the price that Jesus paid to overcome our debt. Christ did not simply pick up a dinner tab. He did not just pay for that extra-large latte. Jesus Christ climbed upon that cross, and he paid a debt that you could not pay and would not pay, and he paid it in full. In his grace, he became our sin and absorbed the total wrath of God in himself that we might be set free. And so our response to him should be one of worship. It should be one of adoration and great joy because the debt that was paid is truly unimaginable. It's so significant to us. We get it personally and we say, all right, if the proportion of that payment is such that it calls for me a right response of joy and adoration and love and service and I'm not doing that, then what's wrong? I would say that you're not hearing Christ say it is finished and understanding what he means. That you think that he paid a small debt. That you think he paid a debt that you're glad he paid it, but you could have paid it yourself. You think that he paid a partial debt and you have to finish paying it. My beloved, the better you understand the debt that Christ paid for you and understand that it is truly paid for in full, the more you get this, the more you'll be filled with joy and adoration and worship. It will be a fruit of your understanding, Christ saying, it is finished. A lasting joy. All right, so we see the work. We see the right response by us. We'll close on this last question because this is a question that causes much confusion in a sermon like this. What work are we then to do? What work are we to do? One of the great dangers of a message like this is slothfulness. It's inactivity in the kingdom of God. It's someone saying, well, you know what? If Christ did pay for it all and he did all the work and you said that several times, pastor, I'm listening and I stand righteous before God right now, I'm complete. In fact, I could come into the presence of a holy God now because I have Christ as my covering. If that's true, then I don't have to do any work. Then I can do whatever I want to do for whatever remaining time I have here on earth. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, because it is, as you say, paid in full. All right, I'm going to say this plainly. Any, any teaching from this that encourages slothfulness or distraction or a lack of work in the kingdom of God is a lie born from hell. Okay? 
So if you've derived anything from this thus far, that you can now do whatever you want to do or be slothful or lazy, then listen closely now, please. The gospel of grace, it does in fact, and we will not apologize for this, it in fact says that Jesus did everything on your behalf. If you are saved, he did everything on your behalf to save you, to bring you into eternal life. This is the free gift of grace by God to sinners to be redeemed. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, most good evangelicals have this memorized, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not what? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so there is a categorical, absolute distinction we have here in the life we live in God and the work that He has done. No work is necessary on your behalf to be saved. As we've already said, no work is necessary for you to be sanctified either. According to God's predetermined, ordained plan, His unmerited favor, His grace placed upon you, you receiving by faith, saves you. And yet, the Apostle Paul says in the next verse, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, in order to make sure that his brothers and sisters in Ephesus did not become slothful or idle, he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You say, now wait a minute. Which one is it? Which one is it? Are we saved by grace and not a result of works? Yes. And therefore what? And therefore we work. He said, redeemed, if we're redeemed by the finished work of Christ, you then become this word workmanship. You know, it's only used one other time in the Bible, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And Paul there is talking about it in the context of God creating the heavens and the earth. So Paul is saying here, you have been created. What? You become a new creature, a new creation. What kind of creation have you become? A workman. So uh, I'm not sure I like that title. There are lots of titles I like in the kingdom, but this one workman, workmanship means what? Means I must work. Now we got it. Or maybe we're just getting it. Your identity, one of your identities in the kingdom of God. There are many, right? I mean, you're a son or you're a daughter. You're a citizen. You're a subject. You are a, a beautiful subject of God. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're a friend. Many titles. There's one, though, that I want us to put on in light of the teaching of the work of Christ, and that is a kingdom worker, that we are called to serve and we are called to ministry. That is not just something you do. That is now your identity. It says, by his workmanship, you are his workmanship. That means, my beloved, that you have been ordained to work. Not work to be saved but working because you are saved. Not working to earn God's favor, but working because you are in God's favor, already in Christ. Your standing is secure by His grace, not your work. And now in that standing, God says what? He says, let's work. You say, that's a subtle distinction. It is absolutely necessary, lest we fall off of the gospel and we become religious. Right? Religion says, you do good and you please God and He'll let you in and He'll be in His good favor. You do this and God's happy. You don't do that and God's upset and that determines whether or not you're with him. The gospel of grace says what? You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, not as a result of your works. So the good works become a product 
or a consequence of being made new, of being made this workman. And these good works that we are called to are not random works. These are not, as the bumper stickers famously say, random acts of kindness, random acts of work. In fact, God says here in Ephesians 10 that God prepared these works for you beforehand, before when, before anything ever was. That's an amazing thought. Before creation, not only did God know you and ordain you to be saved, but he ordained you to work and he ordained the work you're going to work in, the particulars. Wow. It is truly extraordinary to me that God would have this type of precision in our lives. That means that if you're saved by grace, that the work, the kingdom work that you've been called to do will be inseparable from your life being made new. A regenerate life will be a working life. A new creature will work. If Christ finished that work for you that you could not do, listen, saints. If Jesus Christ finished the work for you that you could not do, you will do the work that he has called you to do. You will. If he's finished that work you could not do and you would not do, then you will, as someone saved by grace and dwelt by the Holy Spirit out of your love for God, you will do the work. And if you say to yourself right now, I don't do any of it, I don't even like it, then you have a moment right now, a crisis moment in your life that you need to say, baby, I don't know Christ. So how can that be, Pastor? I profess Christ. I've been baptized. I've been in church my whole life. But I don't serve and I don't love and I don't work and I don't want to. That's a gospel issue. And I pray you would not leave here today without coming before God and and confessing that and asking Him to, to redeem you. God's will for your life in regards to this work is not a mystery. Some of you say, you know, I I would work for God. I just don't know what He wants me to do. It's a great, great dilemma with young people today. I can't discern God's will. And it's a question I get more and more, so it must be a movement now that is in our culture. Pastor, help me discern what God's will is. And I have a simple answer. I say, well, do you read the Bible? Well, yes. Well, that's his will. No, I mean for my life. Well, it certainly is for your life and my life and for everybody saved by grace. But I want to know the details. Well, the details are in there. The details are all there. And truth be told, if you've been in church a while, the problem is not knowing God's will. The problem is not wanting to do God's will. And if we can level the playing field here, it's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of desire. The flesh doesn't want to. When the flesh wins out, we don't do it. So when people say to you, help me discern God's will, it's not a mystery. Don't go looking out there. Don't try to discern these signs. Look into the word of God. Hear God speak to you as a son or a daughter. When my children come to me as a father and they say, Dad, what would you have me do? I don't say, you know, go figure it out. You know, just kind of walk around the house or go outside or hang out up in that field and and maybe you'll know what I want you to do. No, I love you. Say, no, do this. And they go, okay, Dad. And then they do it and they come back and say, Dad, what else do you want me to do? And I tell them. Now, if I can do that as a sinful man with my sinful children, surely a perfect God can do that with those who have been born again. And he does. In great volume, I might add. In great volume. He wants you. I'll I'll make it real simple for you. He wants you to walk by faith. He wants you to hear his word. He wants you to lovingly obey him. Say, well, make make it even more simple. 
Break it down a little bit for me. I'll give you, I'll give you a couple verses here. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Here's the will. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. You say, well, I don't know any orphans. Care for and meet the needs of the most vulnerable amongst you. Look around. See the people that are hurting. See those who are least and those who are last in your mission field and go to them and help them and love them. That's God's will. You say, ooh, that's yucky. That's a little dirty. Strive to keep yourself from being polluted by the things of the world. Strive for holiness. That is God's will, that you be holy as he is holy. That's a, a difficult pursuit given the power of the flesh. I'll give you a couple more. Faithfully engage in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Are you making disciples? You say, no, I'm not ready to make disciples. Then are you being discipled? You're, it's one or the other. You're either being discipled, you're making disciples, and by God's grace, you're doing both. That, that's God's will for us. The Great Commission was given to the church. That's the work. Are you doing the work of the evangelist? Are you telling people about Jesus Christ? Are you being a fisher of men? And that wasn't just for the apostles or the early church fathers, and it's not just for pastors or deacons or ministry leaders. The Great Commission to make disciples, to be fishers of men, was given to the church. Are you doing that work? Are you sharing the love of Christ with your neighbors? See, my neighbors aren't very nice. Are you serving them in any capacity? Do you talk to them? Do you know their names? Do you know their children? Do you know their struggles? This is the work of Christ. To engage the world with gospel dialogue, gospel love, and gospel service. I'll, be, I'll get even more basic. Do you pray for one another? You want to talk about kingdom work? You want to talk about the weapons we work with? Do you pray for one another? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters? Do you pray for your pastors? Do you pray for your church? Do you pray for the lost? That's kingdom work. It's the greatest work you engage in. Do you pray for them? Do you engage in the ministry that God has called and equipped you to do? You have work. I'm not going to make Ephesians 2.10 so broad that there isn't a specific application for you, but you have been gifted. You have certain talents and certain experiences that only you have, and it's not by chance that you have them. God gave them to you that you might be his workman. Are you exercising them? Are you praying that God would give you grace to see them and then walk in them? Because that is the command. It's to walk in the work, not just to know it, And not just to think about it, but to actually do it. And then Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, Paul says, work heartily. I like that word, heartily, with all your heart. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing what? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving who? The Lord Christ. You're serving the Lord Christ. Work with all your might. How many of you get discouraged sometimes when you're working for the Lord? And you say to yourself, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit, Lord? I work and I see no fruit. I serve and I see nothing coming from it. You get discouraged. 
every saint in the history of the church has without exception. Every saint has been discouraged. We read even in the words of the Apostle Paul, there are hard times in doing the work. But what are you going to do, then not do it? Imagine if you approached your job like that. You get to your boss, you know, yesterday, yesterday was a really bad day, so I'm just not going to come to work today. How, how long would that last with your employer? Not very long. They'd say, well, you know what, you don't need to come next week either, or the week after that, because you think it's hard at times. The work of the ministry is going to be hard. But if Jesus Christ finished the work, my beloved, then we too are called to finish the work. Whatever work you've been given to do, called to finish it, equipped to finish it, and empowered to finish it by the love of Christ, out of your love for Christ. And that means if there's breath in your lungs, there is work to do. If you're breathing, there's work. There's kingdom work ordained by God for you to do. And if you think that you're finished, you're not finished. You're not finished if you think you are. If you can speak and think, you can pray. If you can serve in any capacity, then there's service to be done. If God has blessed you with a mind that's still active and limbs that are still operating, there's work. In fact, there's so much work, so much work for us. It's not until you, like our Lord Jesus, bow your head and surrender your spirit into the hands of God that you too can say, it is finished. It is finished. But none of us are there yet at this very moment. So by God's grace, you will work even such that you will plant seeds that after you're gone, that work continues. I mean, what an amazing thought that you can work right up to your last day. And then after you're gone, that work, those seeds that you planted are still moving. I mean, we don't, don't we? We stand on the shoulders of giants. How many men still bless us today? Men that bless me, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield. The names go on and on of men that have blessed me after their death. How glorious if you could continue to bring glory to Christ on earth when you're in heaven with him. Wow, that's an amazing thought. Can't happen if you stop. Can't happen if you don't work up to the end. Young people, listen. Do not let the necessities of this life, school, work, family, entertainment, leisure, become distractions for you and draw you away from the work of Christ. In this cultural moment that's easy to do, do not allow it to happen to you. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters that might hold you accountable in love. Middle-aged folk, those of you who said, you know, I've been running this race a long time and it's becoming awfully routine and it seems a bit mundane, do not allow the glory of Christ to be diminished by your routine in life. Much work to do. My singles, if you're single, I would encourage you to use the time that you have not having a spouse or having children to care for. Use that time to store up your treasures in heaven. Paul calls you to that. You have more time. Use it to bless God with kingdom work. And my elderly amongst us, you're not off the hook. Do not accept retirement ever from the kingdom work. Ever. Ever. You, my seniors whom I love, you have wisdom and experience this world so desperately needs to hear. 
you have wisdom and experience so many young people so desperately need to hear and know. You, of all people, should be making multiple disciples. You, you should be. So if you've retired, if you bought into this Western mindset of retirement and somehow you've retired from the kingdom work, know that your master and your father is displeased and get back to work. Jesus said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. And your heart should say, I will finish as well. I will finish because he has finished for me. My victory is won. My destination is secure. My crucified Savior lives, and I will live with him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that by Christ saying it is finished, it changes everything. It changes everything, Lord. It changes how we see you. It changes how we move through this life. It certainly has the power, Father, to compel us to kingdom work. I ask, Lord, that you be gracious with us and fill us with the joy of this eternal truth that it is finished on the cross. I pray, Father, it would magnify your son's name, that we would see him as more radiant and more beautiful and more loving and more gracious with us in light of this incredible debt that he paid on our behalf, a debt that we cannot pay and we would not pay. Father, let that cultivate in us a deeper understanding of who you are, of who Christ is, and the work the Holy Spirit is doing in us right now. Do that, Lord, that we might be faithful workers, faithfully endeavoring in the work you ordained for us to do. And then set our feet to it, Father. Let us walk in this. Not individually, but as a church, Lord, let us be a body of believers doing kingdom work now that blesses your name and blesses your son forever. I ask, Father, that you would be gracious and do that with my brothers and sisters here and with your church here in the South Bay and your church throughout the world. Do a great work through us, Lord, that you might be magnified and you might be glorified. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.